This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In this episode of History on the New Books Network, we take a look at Ian McPherson McCullough's addition to the Campaigns and Commanders series. Its title, John Bradstreet's Raid, 1758, A Riverine Operation of the French and Indian War. Lieutenant Colonel McCullough served for 37 years in the Canadian Army, retiring in 2014 his last post being director of the Center for National Security Studies at Canadian Armed Forces Joint Staff College in Toronto. He is the author of several books on the topic of the French and Indian War. So tell us, Colonel, what got you started and brought you to this point? Well, that's that's a a good question. Uh, Have you got half a day? To listen, but any you know, to to cut to the quick, uh, this book is a Seven Years' War book, and I first sort of met the historical character that features in it uh, as a young staff officer, young staff captain, taking a course at the Army Staff College, which is located here in Kingston, where I'm now retired, Kingston, Ontario, on Lake Ontario, um, right at the right at the beginning of the St. Lawrence River as it runs down. To the Atlantic Ocean, and it also, while I was at the staff college, uh, I was living in a, I was there for six months, and I was living in a, a little apartment up on the third floor of a building called Bradstreet Block, inside the modern-day Fort Frontenac, which is built right on top of the old uh, ruins of the French Fort, hence its uh, present-day name, though so it's not the, the original. And I used to, when I looked out my window every morning, I could look down, I could see uh, one of the demi-bastions because they had done an archaeological dig and then after they'd left it exposed with retaining walls. So that's when I first uh, got curious about who John Threadstee was and what he had to do with uh, this this fort that I could see every day. Why was he on the plaque, you know, in the, by the main gate of Fort Frontenac. And from there on in, uh, as I progressed through my Army career, I kept it tucked away that one day have a look at John Bradstreet and his reign. And when I retired here in Kingston, it became, became my project. In your book, what was the genesis of it? Um... Is there more to that story that you want to tell us? Yeah, I, uh, actually, uh, the book is based on a, uh, a master's thesis that I wrote when I was actually teaching at 
Joint Staff College in Toronto. I had, for fun, uh, the various directing staff, of which I remember, we would teach graduate electives on different topics in our realms of expertise. And my expertise was seven years more. And I said, well, why don't we look at operational campaign planning and apply it to 18th century campaigns and see you know, what was good, what was bad. And uh, it became quite popular. I taught it for about four years. At the end of which, you know, uh, I had various professors coming in to sit in on the, on the seminars um, for the students' presentations. Uh, Peter McLeod uh, is now the director of the Canadian War Museum. He came down for some of the seminars. Uh, Dr. Jay Cassell, a uh, history prof from York, came over uh, as well, sat in on the seminars. Anyhow, to make a long story short, uh, at the end of uh, about four years of teaching that, um, I was offered an opportunity to get my degree. All I had to do was write a thesis. So I said, I'll do what I used to tell my students to do. I'll, I'll pick John Bradstreet in his raid. And whether it was strategic or not, you know, that was the main gist of my argument. And then, of course, uh, when I retired here in Kingston, I took that thesis that I had written several years before and uh, added to it. And what I added to it was basically every source I could find uh, on the French and the indigenous side of the house to create a more balanced and unvarnished account <laughs> of Bradstreet's raid in 1758. Is this book the first of its kind? Um, and also, what other historians are you working with when you were writing it? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I would say it is uh, uh, the first real observed and researched uh, history. Some people have called it a revisionist microhistory. Um, looking within the context of campaign planning and the, the friction of the various commanders that were at play. Um, historians that I that sort of inspired me and also helped me along the way were, were many. Mm -hmm. Just uh, the literary inspirations of people that had gone before me were people like uh, Stephen Brumwell, who wrote uh, an excellent book on Rogers Rangers and his raid on St. Francis, which occurred in 1759, so a year before. Uh, the raid that I'm writing about, so my book's kind of a prequel to Steve's. Uh, other people that I read that inspired me were Paul Copperman's. Um, he wrote a book called Braddock on the Monongahela, um, which appealed to me at the time because you know, I had just finished my, my, my undergraduate degree in journalism, and he took on sort of an investigative approach and queried the sources and, and, and actually got all the sources he could find on both sides of the, the battle. Um, he, and then he, then he actually classified them, you know, as to whether they were first-hand account, second-hand account, third-hand account, uh, rumor, uh, you know, whether they were letters, whether they were journals, whether they were diaries. And then he sort of graded them as to their authenticity. You know, how credible were these? these people as witnesses uh, to the narrative of what 
actually happening to them. And I, and I can honestly say that now uh, uh, David Preston, um, who teaches down at the Citadel, has written a book called Braddock's Defeatings, won all kinds of awards. It is what I would call the way to do military history. Is that you don't do it from one side's perspective. You have to look at it from the point of view of all the participants involved. So he went and found all kinds of obscure French documents that had never been used before in the telling of Ravdick's defeat. Now, I had, I'm just reading him now. Well, I hadn't read him before, but there are such similar parallels between what I've written on Bradstreet's Raid, because I've done exactly the same thing. I went and found every, because John Bradstreet put his spin on the raid by writing a 12-page pamphlet entitled An Impartial Account of the Capture and Destruction of Fort Frontenac by an anonymous uh, volunteer, uh, which is utter nonsense has been proved that he actually wrote it, very self-serving uh, piece of propaganda. But in that account, which is very detailed and, you know, this, and very, because, you know, he based it off his personal journal that he came, so it has all the timings and who did what when. All historians that have come since Francis Parkman and after have slavishly copied him also word for word, all his uh, analysis, all his uh, views and comments are just paraphrased, usually, um, in any account of this raid. So I said, I finally basically said, time out, I call BS. Um, these accounts are not balanced because they're only told from one point of view. And that point of view is John Bradstreet. And I said, it's time to go and find the provincial soldiers. 3,000 of them went on the raid. I said, out of the 3,000, they should be able to find some diaries, journals, letters, and accounts in newspapers. And so during COVID, you know, really couldn't get out much and universities opened their digital libraries. Um, it was really quite a, quite a good time to actually be doing that kind of research and put it all together. And what we've got now is a, what I think is a balanced version. And uh, John Bradstreet, who historians have portrayed as this heroic commander, audacious, brave, according to his account, um, is a different story when you when you look at it through the filter of the American provincials and uh, that went on the right. And even some of the regulars that went on the right, very few British regulars were on the right. <laughs> One of the interesting things I did find out in the research was that of the British regulars, officers that went on the right, Four of them were American-born. They were, were American-born officers, not British. John Bradstreet being, of course, <laughs> number one on the list because he was born in uh, Nova Scotia to an Anglo-Irish father and an Acadian mother. And his Acadian mother was the daughter of the famous Charles de La Tour, a senior in, down in Nova Scotia. And so Bradstreet growing up as a kid, uh, 
spoke fluent French, learned Mi'kmaq, and English. And so he was a he was one of these transatlantic gentlemen, a guy who, um, when it suited him, he played his Anglo-Irish father card. But when he was dealing with the French, uh, he played his Acadian card. He was, he's quite a complex character. Can you give a brief description of your primary source material? And also, um, what is the impartial account that was published the year after the raid? Yeah, okay, we can refine that a little bit more. Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I wasn't happy with the primary source that everybody was using to to relate the history of this raid and what happened what happened to the participants because everybody was using uh, this impartial account that appeared about nine months after the raid in the London news or in London printed as a private pamphlet written by an anonymous volunteer as I mentioned and it was very uh, laudatory of Bradstreet very laudatory of uh, the British gunners that went on the, uh, went on the raid. His engineer, he praised, um, and he praised his uh, commissary, who was a British uh, officer. But in this uh, this twelve-page, I don't want to call it uh, a rant, but but there certainly are parts of it where he gets quite paranoid about people trying to um, tear down his reputation. And, you know, uh, waging a whisper campaign against him about him not being a good officer. So this document, the impartial account, is what I started with. And I decided to go through it and compare it to um, the provincial accounts and compare it to the French accounts. So I found quite a few French documents that had never been used before, similar to what David Preston did in Braddock's defeat. He went and found uh, French documents that had not been used before in order to provide, you know, a balanced perspective of what actually happened. So I ended up translating uh, a lot of archaic French, getting a little help from uh, a couple of French Canadian buddies of mine that uh, had worked with me on the directing staff at the college. And we get interesting accounts of things that Bradstreet did not even put in the impartial account. And to me, the most egregious omission was the fact that he left out a whole part of the assault on the fort in which uh, British and Americans were repulsed with casualties because it was kind of an ill-advised attempt. It occurred um, the day that the forces landed in the evening after last light. He sent 30 whaleboats full of rangers and New Yorkers to try and cut out the two French warships in the harbor just anchored off the, off the fort. And uh, they were discovered and 
received, you know, broadsides of grapeshot from the ships and immediately turned tail and ran away. And so Bradstreet never even mentions that in the impartial end. And I only discovered it by reading the French account. And then I found a British regular who mentioned it. The British uh, engineer on the raid had mentioned it in his report to the Board of Ordnance in document. And then I also found uh, a provincial account of how they had uh, tried to cut out the two ships in the harbor and being repulsed with, uh, with casualties. Bradstreet ignored it completely. He, he completely... And so then when I found that out, I started to go through the impartial account with a fine-tuned comb and found other disturbing things that were, you know, that just didn't jive with the story that he was telling. Then I also looked at people's journals uh, who recorded meeting Bradstreet after the raid and listening to him explain what had happened on the raid. And, you know, he was claiming things like he hadn't lost a single man on the raid. Well, if you read the impartial account, uh, in the first three pages, he talks about the, the them starting off from the start point of the raid was at uh, the Great Caring Place or the Oneida Caring Place, which is basically where Rome, New York is today, if you know where Rome is situated on the almost up on the source of the Mohawk River that runs down, runs from west to east down to Schenectady and down to Albany, New York on the Hudson. So, there you have it. Great. Are you making a traditional claim or are you taking a radical stance in your book? How have you and other historians interpreted the raid? I wrote the book because no book, no definitive book or monograph has ever been written on the raid. It's usually treated as a sort of a, an afterthought in books on the, the Ticonderoga campaign, and it, it actually was. It was a it was a branch operation off of the main operation for 1758, which was General Abercrombie's drive to take Fort Ticonderoga in advance on Montreal. And while he was doing that, Amherst was on a separate axis of besieging and taking Lewisburg. And then the two of them were supposed to go on and link up at Montreal and Quebec. And Canada was supposed to be taken in 1758, or at least that was the thought. You know, here they were bringing to bear two large forces, one at Lewisburg, primarily Royal Navy and regulars, and then a force uh, coming up the, the Lake Champlain, Lake George, Albany Corridor, in of about 15,000 men, the uh, majority of which were provincial soldiers. After the fact, at the end of the year, when Canada wasn't taken, and, People will find sites said, well, the provincials should have gone to Lewisburg, which is basically spade work, you know, and professional soldiers should have been sent down instead of to Lewisburg, should have gone down to Ticonderoga and marched against. 
Because the, the big thing about the 1758 campaign, it was the first year that William Pitt, the prime minister, got directly involved in the strategy of the war. And he sent very prescriptive orders to Lord Loudon and basically told him to, you know, F off and was sacked and replaced by his uh, second in command, who was the rather uninspired uh, James Abercrombie. Very good second man for any operation. As one officer said, i.e., he was good at administration, but as a commander. That sort of, I guess, that uh, lack of capability on his part was rectified by William Pitt, the signing uh, Brigadier William Howe, one of the three famous Howe brothers. Howe is a name everybody knows from the American Revolution. His uh, youngest brother, William Howe, being the commander in chief of the British forces, and his oldest brother, the Black Dick, Richard Howe. Um, the admiral in charge of the uh, squadrons off of uh, the coast of America. So the two Howe brothers. This Howe, however, was killed uh, on the Ticonderoga campaign just before the battle. He's one of those guys that like to get out in front and lead by example and suffer the consequences. There's some debate on whether he was actually shot by some of his own men or by, by the Frenchman. Anyhow, he was loved by his own men, but so when I say that, I'm saying that uh, perhaps it was uh, a negligent discharge or something like that. Anyhow, anyhow, I sidetracked. Uh, get me back on. Get me back on. On station here. What are we talking about? I am. Taking I am taking a radical stance. This is a, you know, no apologies. This is a revisionist history because I'm saying that the, the history as it stands right now is is BS because it's written from an English POV. Doesn't take into account French accounts, and that historians that have written about it have focused in on uh, have focused in on Bradstreet's account and taking it as gospel. It's not gospel. In fact, when you read the provincial provincial accounts and French accounts, which I've uncovered for this book, um, it was quite, quite a different affair in that the second in command, Charles Clinton, a New Yorker, father of uh, vice president of your country for two different presidents, George Clinton, also Father John Clinton, who went on the right and later became a general during the Revolutionary War. He, General John Clinton, General John Sullivan were the two generals and went and basically wiped out the, uh, <laughs> the six nations in upstate New York, except for the United. So yeah, there was... Um, there were individuals that were deeply invested. Your book does go a whole lot into civilians. Can you tell us more about um, the civilians on both sides of the war and why you decided to focus on them in writing? Yeah, sure. It was um, when I started to do my my 
initial research, I, f I thought to myself, really, the, there's only one voice telling the story. I've got to get uh, other people's voices. So what I did was I went, the place to find this sort of stuff is in the county histories of the various, uh, the various states. And by going to the chapters uh, that deal with the old French war, that's what they called it in 19th century America, it was known as the old French war. Remember that scene in the Patriot where Mel Gibson is having a, a flashback, maybe suffering a little PTSD uh, about his role as a captain in the French and Indian war. They talk about the old, you know, the captain was in the old French war. Well, when you find those accounts, you can, what usually, what you usually find is that the ones that went on the fourth front raid that actually survived um, told their story, or someone wrote down their story, and what, you know what happened to them in later life. So, for example, I found uh, <clears throat> the diary of Nathaniel Woodhull uh, invasion. He, he went on the raid as a major. Massachusetts troops. He later became a martyr of the American Revolution um, um, when he was captured and sabred by British dragoons on Long Island. Um, he was, uh, he got gangrene, they had to cut his arm off, but it was used as propaganda by the Americans to, to show how pitiless and merciless the British were, and they were despots and tyrants and had to be removed. Nathaniel Woodhull, a very good officer, um, but that's what he's remembered for. He's not remembered for being one of the best uh, French and Indian War officers on this raid. And, you know, he was the one that led the Yorkers, which of the four provincial con contingents that went on the raid, was a contingent from New York. It was the largest. Massachusetts, second largest. New Jersey, and then Rhode Island. And uh, he led the workers because uh, Charles Clinton was 68 years old. So when the when the workers went to do their business, they were entrusted with the most dangerous part of the raid. It was Nathaniel Woodhull. All we ever read about him during the American Revolution is that he, that he and his men rounded up cattle on Long Island, were known as the Cowboys, and that he, you know, he was martyred when he was captured in Sabre, you know, or he had surrendered, and then he was sabred. Or you know, the stories are muddied. I didn't get into that in in my book. I think I might have put it in a phone. Where are the indigenous people in all of this? Um, did the natives help or hinder the rivering uh, raid tactics? Well, you know, one could make an argument that that they they're the ones that uh, they're the ones that honed them first. I mean, they were the ones that could move through the wilderness quickly, stealthily, knew, you know, made caches of food. Uh, knew the navigation uh, intimately, uh, the best portage routes. Uh, they knew the, the, 
plagiaries of the lake, Lake Ontario, when you could travel and when you couldn't. And in fact, um, the Haudenosaunee, the 42 warriors that went with Bradstreet on this raid, were representatives from all six of the Six Nations. So, you know, you had Oneida, Tuscarora, Onondaga, the Mohawk. But what was important that all six nations were represented in that. And so what it meant that as the Bradstreet's expedition moved through the wilderness, any Indians allied with the French, uh, like the Mississauga or some of the uh, Christianized uh, Onondaga from Oswagachi, they saw that the Six Nations were accompanying Bradstreet. That's basically signaling to everybody that it was a Six Nations sanctioned event. And I'm going to, to be quite clear that on the on the raid itself, from beginning to end, only there was only one instance of Allied Indians to the French uh, attacking Bradstreet, and that was the killing of two of the scouting party right at the, the outset of the raid. The rest of the time, they were not even in the, in the picture in the 42 Haudenosaunee. But Bradstreet with them, they helped because they were the, the pilots on the lake. They were the ones that uh, could tell, you know, that an hour from now, the lake would just be in a boiling, seething mass of water. And, you know, we're the ones who would say, okay, time for us to get on shore and pull our boats up. And uh, they were also, um, so they were acting as guides. They were acting as the pilots. They were acting as uh, security. And they were also out front with uh, Bradstreet's Rangers uh, leading the way, um, scouting ahead and basically showing the flag, you know, to the Mississauga going, here we come. We're the hood. And then also provincial soldiers, the French and British regulars, the civilians, and prisoners of war. What makes each of these groups so special for you when you were, you know, well, doing your research? Well, just harking back, I don't want to be a broken record here, but their voices have not been heard. They've never been heard in the story of this raid and the story of the raid is never being fully told it's always been this sort of little add-on to the end of Ticonderoga no one's really delved into it to find out what happened to these men the only sort of one headline that comes out of it is Bradstreet you know was a master strategist and made this coup well he didn't actually, the genesis of the plan for the raid uh, didn't actually even come from him. It came from William Shirley, his, his boss, in 1755. Um, so, so these people, the, the sufferings that they went through, the, the deaths that Bradstreet glossed over in his official accounts home, um, the anguish of... Uh, the utter squalid uh, destitution that he left them in uh, at Fort Stanwix after the raid. You know, he was the deputy quartermaster general of the army. He was responsible for rations and quarters and all of this stuff. Man. But then the soldiers came out. He, he basically, uh, 
he basically took off and went back to report to Abercrombie. To all intents and purposes, though it's not recorded, he would later claim in the version account that he implored Abercrombie to let him go back to Oswego, which was empty. It was just a, a ruin from two years previous. The French had captured Oswego and leveled it to the ground. He wanted to go back and uh, reestablish Oswego as the westernmost forward operating base of the British American Army. And Abercrombie said no. Um, you know, because he had, I mean, Bradstreet was basically taking Abercrombie off his main mission, which was to go north up George, capture Ticonderoga, Montreal, and his army was still large enough to do that. He even got reinforcements uh, redirected from uh, Amherst Army at Lewisburg. And, but the one key person that was missing for him to launch northward again on his campaign was was absent off doing his little pet project. I argue in my book that this was a nice to have raid. It wasn't a must have. It was not necessary for General Abercrombie to um, achieve his objective of moving on Montreal. I mean, <clears throat> so Abercrombie kind of uh, got bullied, I think, because he was a very quiet, affable man. And as people that said, you know, very good as an administrator, but he wasn't a, a, a true leader of men. One of my favorite monuments to Abercrombie is at Old Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York. As you drive in over the, the battlefield, there's a monument at one point, and it's a, a monument to the unfortunate general are you writing from a distinctly Canadian point of view? And if so, how does it affect how historians are relating to the period on both sides? No, not at all. Of course, Canada didn't exist, so Canada doesn't have any. As a Canadian, I have any skin in the game. I mean, it was basically sovereign French territory. And the British were coming up for the colonies, which were still British. So it's very much, it was very much a French-British affair. And the fact that I'm Canadian, I, it doesn't bias me to favor one side over the other. I'm trying to do this in a very balanced. I'm trying to give the indigenous point of view, which is hard because they don't have written history. All I have is an oral history. I couldn't find any oral tradition regarding the fall of Fort Frontenac in the, either in the Haudenosaunee or the Anishinaabe uh, storytellers. But if I'm biased, you know, if I do have a biased point of view, it's um, I'm doing this actively from a trained military officer's point of view, no, no nationality attached. And looking at the accounts that have been written so far, you know, I mean, I, in chapter seven of my book, where I talk about assessment, where I assess the rate, one of the first things I look at is the historiography that is just being just pathetic. I mean, it's just, 
in one historian after another, some very respectable, some very famous, some Pulitzer Prize winners. Um, you know, Francis Parkman was the first really to write seriously about the 70s war. But when Fortescue came to write his magisterial uh, history of the British Army, he basically copied Parkman word for word. And Gibson wrote his, you know, where he Gibson wrote his uh, epic volumes on the Seven Years' War, this World War. Um, he uh, basically also copied Parkman. And it's been the same, you know. I mean, every time a book comes out on Ticonderoga, I read these uh, people talking about John Bradstreet did this, John Bradstreet did that. Uh, he took them completely by surprise. And of course, these are many of the myths that I debunk in the book. And what exactly was the riverine capability um, that Bradstreet created? <clears throat> yeah, uh, he, he was, um, as I say, you know, I alluded to earlier, he, he was a bit of a bully, but he, he was, um, He's what the British Army, modern-day British Army, and I know this because I served in the British Army as an exchange officer, he he was what would have been known today as a thruster. He was a a guy that was always pushing, pushing, pushing his commanders. Um, Lord Loudon told a friend of his, told the Duke of Cumberland that he had to be rode with a bridle. He was like a wild horse uh, going off at all in all tangents and directions. And most of the time, anything that he did was, you know, according to his biographer, um, was gauged to either advance him personally, you know, in terms of ferment and promotion. Um, and he was more interested in that really in the sort of the common good or, you know, striking a strategic blow. I think probably his, his first question in terms of before he did anything was, you know, what's in this for me? Um, certainly his biographer says that he was active, an active smuggler as a junior officer when he was serving in Nova Scotia and was involved with the uh, 1745 siege of Lewisburg, which is where he met William Shirley, who then remembered this thruster from that campaign at Lewisburg and invited John Bradstreet to come and set up the bateau service in upstate New York. Um, because Oswego, he was building a fort at Oswego and he needed uh, somebody to run the logistics corridor of the Mohawk River with Creek running all the way to Lake Ontario. And he thought John Bradstreet the idea of a guy to do it. And John Bradstreet was a, you know, he was a, he was a workhorse. I mean, he was a workaholic. Uh, he was a bully. I mean, provincials hated him. They called him the furious Bradstreet. The Indian, uh, the indigenous people of the Mohawk Valley sort of thought he was a bit strange. Um, I think he arrived there thinking that he knew all about indigenous people because certainly 
after his arrival, he started writing letters <laughs> to various governors of the various colonies. Here's a junior major writing to everybody, thinking that, you know, suggesting that maybe uh, some of the French Indians should be won over and he's the guy to do it. He speaks perfect French. His Mi'kmaq didn't help him. I don't think he revealed that he, he could speak Mi'kmaq. But he th I think he thought that he knew the indigenous mind, and he knew it better than Sir William Johnson, of course, who was the superintendent of Indians for the, for the northern colonies. And uh, the two of them butted heads right from the get-go. And, you know, people warned Sir William Johnson that Bradstreet was after his job, and... And from what I can see, they were probably right. But Sir William Johnson and Bradstreet would, um, they would rub shoulders for the next you know, 20 years, you know, and they both died in the same year. They both died immediately before uh, the American War of Independence. And you got to wonder, you know, with the death of Sir William Johnson, would the Haudenosaunee to a man gone to war for the British? Uh, they were kind of um, fractured and divided when the war broke out. Um, and if Bradstreet had survived, you know, with his uh, experience, by this time he's a major general, because once you get promoted full colonel in the British Army, in the 18th century, after a certain amount of years, you automatically get promoted to major general. So he he was a major general when he died, and uh, probably would have been the senior British commander, at least in in Canada, for the war if he had lived. Why was the raid overshadowed by bigger victories in 1758? You have Louisbourg, you have um, Amherst at Ticonderoga, and you have Niagara also, and Quebec. And Quebec with, uh, with James Wolfe, of course, yeah. Well, it's for certainly, uh, Louisburg and Quebec uh, were strategic objectives. Quebec because it was the capital of New France, and Louisburg because it was a, a fortress that, with a good harbor, with the French fleet in it, and you couldn't really advance, well, at least the British thought that you couldn't advance on Quebec and leave Louisbourg in your rear, you know, with its fleet. But the problem is that there has to be a fleet there, you know, for Louisbourg to be effective. If it doesn't have a fleet in its harbor, then it's just a, as a, a famous Canadian historian said, just a stone prison for its garrison, you know and a pretty bad one at that. They're on the edge of the North Atlantic, those nor'easters. It was not a, it was not a, a, a good posting for French soldiers. Also, um, how prevalent was disease on the campaign, especially after the raid? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, I mean, the, the raid itself started, as I said before, at the uh, Oneida Caring Place, where Rome, New York is located. And the whole reason that they started from there, because that is where the provincials had gathered to build 
a new fort, which would be named for their commander, uh, Brigadier General Stanwix. So Fort Stanwix was being built in 1758 simultaneously with the raid. So 3,000 of them stayed to build the fort, or wrong, 2,000 stayed to build the fort, 3,000 went on the raid. 3,000 they came back, uh, half of them were sick as soon as they got back because their constitutions had just been totally devastated by the early pace that Bradstreet had set for them. You know, Charles Clinton, the 68-year-old New Yorker that went on the expedition, I mean, he must have had an iron constitution. And certainly, you know, he must have been uh, carried some of the time, or he must have been a tough old bird. But anyway, they they, they came back, and they were dying in droves. They were dying in dozens. Um, the, the main culprits being camp fever, what they called camp fever was really typhus. Uh, dysentery, which Charles Clinton uh, had before he was even going on the raid, um, and smallpox had also brought, broken out in uh, broken out in the camps where the raid launched from. So there was men going on the raid that were that had already contracted uh, smallpox or typhus or dysentery. Um, also, the uh, I think one of the things I mentioned in the book, and I I, I really got upset about it as a, a former commanding officer of men. The first thing you look after is your soldiers' welfare. And in his impartial account, Bradstreet talks about how when people go down this, the Wood Creek down to Lake Oneida, they take barrels of fresh water that they gather you know, up at the uh, fresh springs up on the portage. And then they put them in their boats and they go down because they can't use the water. Well, in this case, there was no orders given by Bradstreet for this to happen. And so a lot of the men that went down on the first leg of the trip uh, drank water from Wood Creek, which was not very healthy, and got sick. The other thing that happened was a lot of the soldiers became walking wounded because for three days prior to them launching on their raid, they had to load their bateaus and they were in the water. And they were also in the water clearing uh, trees and obstacles that had been created two years before when uh, um, General Webb had panicked and ordered forts at the Oneida Caring Place destroyed and for trees to be felled across the river to block the French coming up from Lake Ontario. So for this raid, <laughs> Bradstreet's men had to cut their way through about four miles of uh, fallen trees and, and uh, log jams that had been created on the river that he wanted to use. And he did this on the front end of the raid. He could have done it a couple of weeks, I guess, prior to the right order to happen, but he didn't want any any uh, intelligence indicators given to the enemy that, that an expedition was coming down the river. But certainly everybody, you know, one of the big things in the impartial camp 
And then Bradstreet touted was this myth of total surprise. You know, everybody was, the French were totally surprised. Well, it's very hard to achieve um, tactical surprise when you've got to traverse, you know, hundreds of miles of territory that is through indigenous people's land because they're going to see you coming and they're going to report it up the chain of command. That's exactly what happened with the Bright Streets raid. The other thing, too, is that when he was starting off on his raid, he had a conference with about 150 Haudenosaunee to try and convince them to come on the raid. Only 42 of them agreed to go on the raid, but representative of the Six Nations. But he was furious because he thought, you know, they should all come and that they were not loyal to the British cause. Well, the fact of the matter is most of them had been at Ticonderoga, where the British had got their ass handed to them. They had seen the effects of artillery and seen that stone fortresses were not really something that they, they were interested in. And so when Bradstreet gathered them all together and said they were going to attack the, the French stone fort at Frontenac, you know, most of them said, well, I, I've got to get back. I've been away a long time. I've got to get back, help with the harvest and hunting for the winter. <laughs> so, and said, bye, have a good time. And uh, Bradstreet was furious. And then when he, when he was trying to argue uh, that maybe he should go and take Fort Niagara as well, you know, exploit, you know, uh, basically exploit success and take Niagara because it could only be lightly held. Um, it was pointed out to him that the Seneca, it was in Seneca territory and no diplomatic efforts had been made to. So he tried to imply that the Seneca were, were disloyal and we should just ignore the fact that it was their land and plow on through. That was the kind of guy that Bradstreet was. Had to be rode with the bridle at all times. <laughs> was technology a major factor in the success of a riverine raid? Not really. I would say not technology because there was a technology all in place. I mean, a bateau is a bateau. I mean, they were they were they had a quite a large boat. It could fit eighteen men and eight barrels of something. Um, you know, it had a steering oar on the back of it. Um, it also could have. Uh, sail put up, you know, a favorable wind behind. Uh, clinker built, you know, usually with uh, white pine clinkers on the side, you know, which could get stove in by rocks and stuff. But the bottom was made out of oak. It was made out of a hardwood so that the bottom could scrape over shallow rills or rifts in the river, you know, without, you know, damaging the boat, but certainly the sides. And certainly after Bradstreet went down uh, more turbulent Oswego River um, below the Mohawk or below the uh, Oswego Falls. Um, a lot of the boats were stone in. One of the one of the boats carrying the artillery. Uh, he had special bateaus designed and built to carry his artillery. One of those went over in the rapids, and uh, his bateaumen had to train retrieve the gun, which they successfully did. But certainly the tech, it was really the expertise that was all important 
in riverine operations. I mean, you asked me earlier, you know, were the indigenous people able to um, help or hinder? Well, in this case, they knew the river intimately. Um, they passed that knowledge on to Bradstreet's Bedouin, many of whom had been going up and down that river since 1755, when Bradstreet initially created the bateau service as this logistical supply chain of convoy boats going up and down the, the corridor to keep Oswego supplied. So technology, no, it was the existing technology, but it was the expertise of how to negotiate parts of the river that most sort of normal armies would throw up their hands, or 18th century armies would throw up their hands and say, this is impossible. But, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. And if Bradstreet has any particular legacy, it's not a, it's not the furious Bradstreet as a leader of men or a good commander. It's as an innovator in establishing the bateau service, uh, identifying the people that he needed to do it, uh, putting key individuals and trusting key individuals and getting the boat builders and, you know, so bateau service is more than just guys in boats, you know, transporting goods. It's the, the guys building the boats as well. It's the carpenters, it's the, uh, the ship's caulkers. It's, you know, it's, it's a team effort, and that's what his that's what his contribution, I think, was to the Seven Years' War. What about other news stories? Were they critical of British American provincial troops, and why so? That's an interesting question. Um, of course, there's a press back in the motherland, back in Britain, and typically officers or high-ranking officials would write letters um, signed if it was about something really good pertaining to them, or if it was, you know, to criticize somebody else, uh, could be anonymous. So a gentle, be signed a gentleman in the army, <laughs> you know, but critiques of uh, Abercrombie certainly appeared in the press. Critiques of uh, various people would appear in the press, in the British press. But certainly in the, in the colonial press, you know, folks like Ben Franklin and what have you would read the British press. And then whenever the British press criticized uh, the provincials, uh, would take umbrage and, and would give as good as they got, you know. And I mean, my book starts off with Ben Franklin, you know, writing to the editor writing a sternly worded letter to the editor back in the UK about a letter that some gentleman in the army at Ticonderoga had written blaming uh, the Ticonderoga fiasco on the provincials. And in fact, it was the generalship of General Abercrombie just sort of sending his men forward in senseless, futile, frontal assaults, kind of like the Russians in Ukraine right now. You mentioned Benjamin Franklin, um, but help, who else do you think your audience would be surprised to hear was involved in the raids um, in some way? Other interesting figures. Well, yeah, there's uh, several. Well, I mean, when you look at 
who was the leadership? Who were the generals commanding in the next war? Almost every general that served in the Northern Department during the American Revolutionary War uh, had been on the raid, which I found quite amazing. Um, got, we talked about Nathaniel Woodhull. The, the, we talked. Uh, we talked about Charles Clinton and his uh, his sons, uh, John and George Clinton, went on into politics. We talked about. Did we talk about John Cochrane? He was a lowly surgeon's mate on the on the raid. He and. But by the time of the Revolutionary War, he was a doctor, and he ended up being the director general of hospitals for Washington. At Valley Forge, he was the guy who uh, implemented uh, smallpox inoculation in, in the Continental Troops, mandatory smallpox inoculation. And so he, was, he cut his teeth on the rain. Philip John Schuyler, who didn't go on the raid because he had just got married, but he, if he'd gone on the raid, he probably would have been the commissary of the, for the raid, trusted uh, by uh, John Bradstreet. They spoke in French all the time because Philip John Schuyler had been sent off to learn French in New Rochelle. In fact, Bradstreet surrounded himself with a lot of um, French-speaking officers and he preferred to speak in French because he thought it gave him better security. Kind of backfired on him in uh, Lewisburg, though, because the provincials there heard him speaking French and thought he was a spy or a traitor. He didn't really trust John Bradstreet, whose, whose real first name was Jean-Baptiste. You have records such as the Captain Goose Fan Shake Orderly book? What made these kinds of sources so valuable? Well, orderly books are, are interesting things because they give us an insight into the daily workings of the regiment, of the army. And on the raid, there was there's at least two or three orderly books that survived. And Goose Van Shake orderly book is in the Fort Ticonderoga Museum uh, collection. And... Uh, it's just in the process of being transcribed, but I was able to obtain some advanced uh, digital scans and use it as well. And what they do is they have all kinds of uh, minutiae and detail besides the sort of, you know, the guard beating will be at such and such a time. And it has entries that talk about promotions, uh, desertions, um, court martials. Um, and all the orders, you know, for, for example, one of the annexes in my book is, is an amalgamation of the order for the, uh, the assault, um, the assault landing by Bradstreet's troops, um, at Frontenac and how the boats were to go in sort of a, a detail of how this amphibious assault is to take place. And, Interestingly enough, when I compared all the orderly books, they basically it was almost word for word. Some unusual and unique spellings of certain words, but pretty much word for word. But they are orderly books, journals, 
diaries, a lot of the provincial, just depending on the rank of the individual who's writing the diary or journal, that dictates how much detail you get. So, for example, I use a, a minister, a chaplain of the Massachusetts Regiment, use his journal. It's very chatty, talks about all kinds of stuff, whereas you look at a private soldier or sergeant's journal, it talks about the weather that day and how far they marched. Uh, there's not really that much meat on the bone. Uh, and of course, the best diaries or journals are those written by the captains or captains or lieutenants because they, they put a little bit more more into what they're writing. But I mean, you've got to remember that a lot of these provincial soldiers, this was their rite of passage. They, they were going to the frontiers to fight like their fathers and their grandfathers before them had. There was a militia tradition. Knowledge of military tradition in, in New England that they were Puritans. Most of most were Puritans, and they they had a very religious um, approach to that they were doing this because they were God's chosen people. Their enemy were Papists. Their enemy were, were Catholics. So religion came, very much came into it as well. Bradstreet's men suffered losses. What kinds of losses did they suffer after and during the raid? Yeah, well, there's two there's two kinds of casualties. Uh, there was those that were due to enemy action, and then there was those that died of uh, through sickness and an accident. Um, of course, I think the highest number of casualties, and this will never be confirmed because they didn't keep accurate records or returns of how many were sick uh, and wounded. Um, on the raid itself, the guy that should have been keeping that sort of information was wounded himself on, on the night of the, the night of the main assault as they moved in, into position. Uh, Lieutenant Archie Graham. But you're able, uh, my through my sort of looking through all the sources and journals and diaries, was able to come up with, I think about 20 men were killed and wounded on the raid. And that a, another, between another 400 and 500 died of various diseases and accidents on the way back. I mean, they were dying. They were just falling down dead on the way back. Charles Clinton criticized Bradstreet. And here's the second in command criticizing his commander and said that Bradstreet treated his men and all the all the provincials with vast slavery. Pretty harsh. If another riverine raid was used either on another river, where would it have been? Because we've been talking about Fort Frontenac this whole time. Well, um, certainly the, the British weren't the first sort of to, to master riverine tactics. The French were the first to use it, and they used it. They moved their army on two occasions, basically preemptive strikes. They, they In 56, they moved against Oswego, and they moved across Lake Ontario, and they attacked Oswego there at the mouth of the Oswego River. They also moved down... Uh, and moved down the Richelieu River and down Lake Champlain to Fort Ticonderoga. And 
past, well, then it was called Carrion because it was still French, and then uh, down Lake George to attack Fort William Henry, which, of course, is the fort in that movie, Last of the Mohicans, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, so that they put that fort under siege, they capture it, they raise it to the ground, and then they don't hang on to it. They hang on to neither one of those forts. Oswego they destroy, Fort William Henry they destroy, and then they re retreat back to the status quo defensive lines of Fort Frontenac, on, or Fort Frontenac and Fort Niagara on Lake Ontario, and then uh, Fort Carillon or Fort Ticonderoga on uh, Lake Champlain. Was Bradstreet only a good commander? What else did he accomplish, and how would it have helped his military career? Well, his military career, I would say that his raid in 1758 was the height of his military career. He didn't get the the fame and fortune as others did, you know, with more strategic victories. And he... He certainly, in my mind, was not really a good commander. He was a good uh, logistician. He was able to, you know, marshal the things that needed to be uh, done for major expeditions. And so, as all the various commanders in chief, one by one, got fired that he was working for, he was one of the only staff officers that remained a constant throughout the Seven Years' War, you know, Shirley was fired and replaced by Loudon. Loudon was fired, replaced by Abercrombie. Abercrombie was fired, replaced by Amherst. Well, guess who's the Deputy Quartermaster General for, you know, when Amherst is in charge? It's still Bradstreet. Bradstreet desperately wanted to, you know, be made a brigadier and go off and, um, you know, independent command, which is basically what he got with Abercrombie. He, cajoled and bullied Abercrombie and sending him off the main line of operation in doing his little pet project, which basically had no strategic importance in terms of what Abercrombie had to do. So was he a good commander? Uh, no, but was he an innovator? Was he a good logistician? Absolutely. And his legacy was to uh, enhance the mobility of the British Army and the American uh, provincials' ability to move through the wilderness. And that operational, that's an operational capability. That's not just a tactical thing. That's the next level. With your experience at CBC and A&E's television series, what in your book do you think, and the French and Indian War, could be adapted for popular viewing? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I know that my buddy, uh, Steve Brumwell, after uh, publicating or publishing his uh, book, White Devil, about Rogers Ranger's attack on, on St. Francis, um, he was thinking of maybe putting together a television script or something for that. But we've seen recently, I mean, the most recent movie concerning the French and Indian War from Hollywood was, of course, Daniel Day-Lewis, um, Last of the Mohicans, which was a fairly romantic uh, portrayal of how it really was. 
of course, you know, it's based on a James Fenimore Cooper novel written in the, you know, the early 19th century. And, and strongly influenced though, by Francis Bergman too. So the m movie that everyone that's being made that still seems to resonate with a lot of people is Northwest Passage, which was done at the end of the Second World War. One of the first color movies that up there with Richard Vaz. It was done as a bit of a propaganda movie because of showing Americans and Brits working together to, to defeat the French in this case or no, to, not to defeat the French, to defeat the uh, Indians, Abnaki, Indians and their allies at the, the village of Odenak or St. Francis. So they turned this raid into a movie called Northwest Passage, starring Spencer Tracy. And you talk to a lot of reenactors these days at Seven Years War events, and you ask them, well, how did you get into reenacting? They said, oh, well, when I was 10 or 12 years old, I saw... Northwest Passage on television. You know, and of course, everybody, what was that other movie there based on James Fenmore Cooper, Hawkeye? Did you ever hear of that? That was a, one of those early uh, black and white TV shows, Hawkeye. Another movie, Drums Along the Mohawk, that came out in the 50s. But is there anything in this book? Yeah, I think you could make a movie about, about the raid, you know, if you did it from a provincial point of view rather than from Bradstreet because you know I don't see Bradstreet as the hero in this I see the hero in this I see the common soldier as the hero in this raid because with vast slavery they brought down a, a legendary French fort in the wilderness the guy that uh, made it possible for them to do it was Bradstreet but they're the ones that did it, not him. <laughs> and to get a better state of the field and what your research is in, what other authors do you recommend people to read who write on similar topics? Well, there's a there's a whole pantheon of of excellent uh, historians out there now, uh, going back and doing what I'm doing, going because you know I mean. Francis Parkman has been completely discredited as a as a source, um, um, racist almost, you know, in terms of his treatment of indigenous peoples. Um, I was very conscious of that too. You know, I mean, there's no written history for the indigenous people that were involved in my story, so I made a point of contacting uh, Darren Bonaparte, who's a Mohawk historian, and and uh, running a lot of my stuff past him. I also was able to travel to Tyendinaga, which is a Mohawk uh, reservation quite near to Kingston, here where I live. These are descendants of the Mohawk that fought in the uh, American Revolutionary War. And then because they were loyalists to the British Crown, they were given their own land, just as a lot of uh, settlers from the Mohawk Valley that fought for the king. They were given land in the, in the same area here in Kingston. I mean, I'm right in the middle of loyalist country here. Everything from basically the Isle of Quinte on uh, Lake Ontario, all running all the way up to the Ontario-Quebec border, was settled by loyalists coming up after coming up after the uh, War of Independence. 
are there monuments to Bradstreet or the rape that exists today that people or anyone can visit? Author, other authors that I would, that there's a lot of good authors out there right now writing good stuff. Steve Brumwell, I've already mentioned. Uh, Dave Preston's book, Braddock's Defeat, excellent book. I mean, you want to find out how the French and Indian War started, read Braddock's Defeat by David Preston. Excellent book that influenced me a lot, uh, Gorillas and Grenadiers by uh, fellow Canadian Ian K. Steele. I mean, he's the first the guy that I read that talked about the usable past and how path, uh, history is used uh, by different groups to uh, tell their story and that distorts and creates a bias. And then Paul Carpermans, who I also mentioned, who did a sort of a very investigative look at Reddick on the Monarchy. Look at so many myths and romantic stories growing up. So Carpermans is a good guy. Um, I really liked Fred Anderson's book, the, A People's Army. I, I, I consulted that quite a bit for the provincial side of the house. No one's really done any work on the provincials other than, uh, than, than him and a couple other good authors like uh, Peter Way. And uh, certainly uh, that was my intent with this book. And the book is actually... You know, if you read the uh, dedication at the front, the book is uh, dedicated to the provincial soldiers of New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, who caused the legendary French fort to fall in the wilderness and a new British fort to rise up at, uh, at the great Oneida carrying place. What monuments to Bradstreet exist today? Uh, to my knowledge, there's no statue of him. Um, and until, you know, uh, about 10 years ago, no, there was no picture of him. Nobody even knew what he looked like, you know, even if they'd wanted to make a statue of him. Uh, but they found a portrait of him, and that portrait, of course, is in the book. And uh, it's an interesting portrait. Uh, I had it a, as a screensaver while I was... Uh, writing the book over a course of two years. And uh, there he is staring out at me. And the first thing you notice is that he's down half a pint. You know, he's got this bright red sunburn, which basically stops uh, at the tip of, his no tip of his nose. So he has these sort of white raccoon eyes and a very white forehead. And then he sort of slapped a a wig on top of all that to, you know, to show that he's back in polite society and he's having his portrait painted, but he's obviously just stepped out of the bateau. He's back from his, you know, three months of uh, trying to re relieve the siege of the Fort Detroit, but he's in absolute disgrace with Gage, his superior, because he's negotiated the... Uh, you know, unauthorized pieces, you know, with every Indian tribe that he met along the way, he tried to, you know, again, you know, trying to uh, basically steal Sir William Johnson, the superintendent of the Indians' job, which was his job to go in after the the folks had been overawed and determine what the, the treaties and the peace arrangements would be. So Broad, Broad, Bradstreet basically stepped on his proverbial 
in his last campaign of the Seven Years' War, 1764, which sort of basically earns him, um, doesn't get fired from his job, but he never gets given, never gets given a governorship, you know. He, he lobbies. He tries to get the governorship of New York. He tries to get the governorship of Massachusetts. Lobbies everybody, but to no end because, you know, to, in order to get something like that, you need a recommendation from your immediate superior, General Thomas Gage. And Thomas Gage is the commander-in-chief, basically, from the end of the French and Indian War to the outbreak of the American War of Independence. And our friend John Bradstreet. Baptiste and his buddy, Sir William Johnson, both died two years uh, before the war in 1774, both died the same year. If the audience wanted to get in touch with you, how could they do that? Are, are you going to have any seminars, um, lecture series, or any activities um, in person or online? Well, this is, the, this is my sort of first... Uh, my first solo with the public is chatting with you guys and telling me telling you guys about my book. But I will be doing a, a Zoom with Old Fort Niagara uh, next week on the sixth of October. So if you go to Old Niagara, Fort, Old Fort Niagara, you can get the de- details from there. And then um, I'm also doing uh, a, a I. I'm speaking at the Sir William Johnson Conference, which is being held in uh, Fort Plains, New York, which is uh, October as well. And if you go to uh, Fort Plains Museum website, you can get all the details of the Sir William Johnson Conference. They have some great uh, speakers there. David Preston will be speaking there. John Parmenter will be speaking there. Uh, Darren Bonaparte, who I mentioned already, the Mohawk historian, he'll be there. So it's a good uh, slate of folks for that. It's uh, basically uh, a two-day, a three-day event. They start off with a day a staff ride or a battlefield tour of Lake George, and then, and then the next two days are conferences and speakers. I've also been invited next year to be the keynote speaker at uh, uh, the 26th Annual uh, Seven Years War College, which is held every year at uh, Fort Ticonderoga in the, in the Mars Center is a beautiful state-of-the-art uh, auditorium and uh, usually that's a two-day program there and they're lining up other speakers right now as I speak I'll be honing in on the fact that uh, they loaned me the Gooseman Shake uh, orderly book from their collection so I'm gonna do it uh, look at the raid through Goose's eyes and uh, what it was like for the men of the New York regiment on this raid. Interestingly enough, uh, of all the provincials that served with, uh, I mean, Bradstreet loved his batomen and he looked after them. He didn't give a fig about anybody else. But whenever he was writing about the quality or the efficiency or the bravery of provincials, he always singled out the New Yorkers. You know, he, he, he would say, you know, there has been a great want of, you know, there's been great desertion and great want of uh, enthusiasm. And then he'd always qualify that with a little caveat, except the Yorkers. And that's probably because a lot of his backers for the raid were you know, 
influential New York families out of Albany that he had, you know, become quite tight with because in order to um, create a huge logistical system of resupply, boat building, fort building, the guy was sort of the Albert Speer of the French and Indian War. He made it, he made it all happen, which is why commanders tolerated him. They, you know, he was... You know, he was good to have around to do that kind of thing, but they didn't want to let him do anything else. And that that really peed him off. What are your future research projects? Any writing in the works? Well, I've uh, just, uh, this was my COVID baby. So now I've sort of, I have one more French and Indian War book in me, I think. And... Uh, it's along the lines of my previous two offerings, which were uh, editorial jobs, writing the introduction and annotating um, actual persons, journals, or memoirs, or anecdotes from the French and Indian War. Uh, a few years back, I uh, decided that it was time to gather up all of Grenadier Sergeant Thompson's stories that appear in various sources everywhere and put them up, compile them all together. And I wrote a book called The Bard of Wolf's Army. And it's a collection of all his anecdotes and stories that he told his son word for word. And uh, they're transcribed and they're annotated and cross-referenced. And then uh, my last book before before John Bradstreet's raid was called The Dangerous Service. And it was about a young black watch officer who had come and fought in the French and Indian War and kept a journal. And, uh, and it's, uh, so those are, that's what I, I, I've got one book like that left because many years ago, about 10 years ago, I was researching some other story, I think a magazine article uh, for the bulletin of the Fort Ticonderoga Museum. And it was, uh, yeah, they were the letters of uh, Captain Archie Gordon of the 27th Regiment of Foot. And there was a gentleman in his regiment called Henry Pringle. And I discovered he had written about 55 letters. And they were in the Canadian National Archives. So I've transcribed them all. I've uh, investigated the provenance of these letters and just two years ago, they found a portrait of him as well in a castle in uh, in uh, Ireland, because he was Irish. I mean, he was uh, from Innes, the Inniskilling area. So anyway, so I'm toying with the idea of finalizing those 55 letters. And one of his most quoted letters is a letter that he wrote after being captured at the Battle Battle on the Snowshoes. It was famous, one of these famous ranger epic stories of Rogers Rangers, you know, fighting to the last man, surrounded in a snowy wilderness, and you know, Rogers escaping by leaping off a, a cliff. But Henry Pringle was not so lucky. He gets captured along with his buddy, and uh, after he's captured, he wrote a long letter detailing. Uh, 
what had happened, which Robert Rogers was grateful for because a lot of people criticized him on his return after losing most of his men. Um, I, basically, it was a defeat. And Pringle, you know, with no real axe to grind, uh, gave a clear, succinct account. So that's his most famous letter of the 55. But there's other great letters with just as much detail and need, you know, need to see the light of day. And so busy annotating them at the moment. Oh, by the way, he signed his letter. <laughs> his letter that he sends that Rogers is so thankful for because it kind of exonerates him from being a poor commander in the field says that he did basically everything he could possibly do, you know, but they were overwhelmed and surrounded. Um, he signs in, uh, in, Rogers puts it in his book. Rogers uh, writes a book, uh, The Journals of Robert Rogers. And for that particular episode, he quotes that letter in full, but he doesn't say he wrote it. And many people didn't know who had written it. Uh, and then I found the letter. It was written by Henry Pringle. And Henry Pringle, but in the book, uh, Rogers just, uh, for the signature at the end of the letter, he just wrote, A Gentleman of the Army. So I said, well, that'll make a good title for the next book, A Gentleman of the Army. The Letters of Henry Pringle, 17, 1756 to 1762. So there you have it. Well, I hope the audience does go out and purchase it. Um, and this has been a great interview. No, I've, I've written it, you know, with the general public in mind. It's not, uh, I, I think it's quite almost conversational in its approach. Um, but it does assume that, you know, I, I'm not going, I spend the first chapter sort of setting the big picture. So if you don't really have that much knowledge, of the Seven Years' War, there's a little sort of primer there at the front end. And so, as a military man, you're always taught go start with the big picture and then work your way down to the small picture. In this case, this has been a podcast episode of the New Books Network with your host Nathan Moore. We thank Ian McPherson McCulloch for sharing his interpretation of John Bradstreet's raid, and hope you have enjoyed it. Also, keep up to. Keep up to date on all things NBN and history to get more episodes like ours in the future.